Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tamdunya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show... Just the nastiness of the debate and some of the things that came out of people's mouths that were just not backed and not what people are experiencing. Calls to a First Nations hotline more than tripled last weekend following Saturday's referendum. We hear more on the impacts. Also, a Brisbane-based social enterprise is helping businesses and events take positive action for climate. So what effect could this have on environmental sustainability across Australia? And later in the show... And, you know, we see these sorts of things all the time. And, and you know, one of the things we do try to to advocate to governments is that, you know, there, there are minds are, are definitive, you know, and, and we know this, you know, that, that minds do come to their end of the life. And so it's always in the back of people's minds. Swiss mining giant Glencore announced it will shut down its copper operations in Mount Isa by mid-2025. So what is the outlook and how will the community move ahead? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today... As the war between Israel and Hamas rages into its 13th day, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza continues in swift descent. Since October 7, the death toll has skyrocketed to thousands on both sides. With a number of humanitarian corridors blocked, severe concern remains for welfare of civilians without food and supplies as the lives of many seriously ill and vulnerable patients remain uncertain. Action Aid Executive Director Michelle Hichelin says there are 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza now, with 10% due to give birth in the next month. Action Aid has partners on the ground who have spoken with families in southern Gaza forced to return home. I spoke with Michelle to hear more on these reports. Friday, the Israeli army ordered one million civilians from Gaza to evacuate. Since many of these civilians have had to t- uh, return to northern Gaza, the evacuation orders have been condemned by a number of human rights organizations. Can you tell me anything about the direct impact of these evacuation orders? It was an incredible demand made by the Israeli army for 1.1 million people in the north of Gaza to evacuate within the space of 24 hours and did create a devastating humanitarian situation. Our colleagues I was speaking to yesterday told me that there were people lined up in the street in South Gaza, even those who had evacuated to schools didn't have mattresses or blankets and basic food and water. Many have made a very tough choice to return home because as they as our colleagues tell us they would rather die with dignity in their own homes than of starvation dehydration you know on the streets of of southern gaza and what risk does this pose There, there are huge risk for civilian lives one of the basic laws in conflict is that civilians should not be actively targeted and you know with Israel indicating that it is going to start a ground offensive this really poses the risk to the safety of millions of people in Gaza even at the moment air raids and bombings are continuing around the clock throughout Gaza colleagues also in southern Gaza shared that yesterday one of the last operating bakeries was bombed by Israel leaving thousands of people who were relying on that as a food source of food you know without access to anything 
the, the situation is catastrophic and will be, particularly if Israel does proceed with the ground offensive. There are also reports that this morning Israel has allowed water and food into Gaza but not humanitarian aid. What is Action Aid support in Palestine saying about this aspect? So we've heard that access has been committed to, but that water and food has yet to be received by people in Gaza. This is an immediate need. People have already run out of clean water and are in urgent need of food. So, I mean, it's it's a critical first step, but we do need humanitarian assistance. With more than one million people displaced in Gaza, it is critical that we get basic supplies into Gaza to be able to support civilians. With the denial of that humanitarian aid, what are civilians most in need of at the moment? I think the the lack of water is, is really a major issue in Gaza at the moment. And definitely, unless that water comes through immediately, there is a huge threat of waterborne diseases. And we've already heard many stories about people drinking dirty water just, to, just as a way to survive. I mean, this could cause, a, you know, a huge health catastrophe. We're particularly concerned about the situation for, you know, pregnant and breastfeeding women. You know, definitely women who are breastfeeding need access to clean drinking water in order to... To, to feed their, their newborns. What are you hearing from partners and support aides on the ground and how, how are they coping with the situation themselves? I think this is a frightening situation for everyone in Gaza. What I've heard from, you know, a young Palestinian woman in Gaza has said that nowhere is safe. Bombing and the air raids are happening continuously in all through Gaza, both in the north and south. Nowhere is safe. And I I think this is the real challenge for humanitarian actors on the ground. We are trying to distribute food where it is available, but it's not safe. And, you know, trying to access shelters where people are does pose risk, you know, of bombing, even yesterday we obviously saw the bombing of a hospital in North Gaza. This is absolutely outrageous and an extreme violation of international humanitarian law. Civilians have to be protected. They they can't be a target. And, And that extends to, you know, humanitarian workers. It is said that Hamas has told civilians not to leave. What are the comments that you have received around this? We have not heard that report from our colleagues on the ground. I think the reality here is that many people can't leave. There are 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza at this moment. 10% of those are due to give birth in the next month. They can't walk 45 kilometres south and risk the onset of early labour. And in terms of calls to action to world political leaders, what are you most hoping for? So look, ActionAid is calling on world leaders, including our own government, to employ all available means to stop the bombing, to ensure a ceasefire is in place. And and really, it's essential that we de-escalate the violence. War is not the answer here. ActionAid Executive Director Michelle Hishelin speaking with me there. calls to a First Nations crisis hotline more than tripled last weekend following Saturday's referendum, according to the head of a First Nations crisis support service. 13 Yarn National Manager Marjorie Anderson says dialogue around the referendum has taken its toll on the welfare of First Nations people, with reports from help seekers revealing an increase in negative experience and is urging Indigenous Australians facing distress to reach out. I spoke with Marjorie about some of the thoughts and comments from 
from First Nations communities following Saturday's referendum. A lot of the comments that we're getting from our help seekers are things like, I don't want to go back into my workplace because people would want to talk about the results of the referendum and I don't feel strong enough to be able to listen to that talk and they would want me to give my opinion and I just don't want to talk about it. I just want to reflect. People are saying they want to stay inside their houses. They don't even want to go to the grocery store. They don't want to go out and about because they just don't want to deal with the fact that everybody's talking about the referendum. There was one caller that said that she'd been yelled racist comments in the street. She said, ordinarily, that would fall off my back. But after the referendum, it really triggered me. And that's why I had to ring 13 Yarn. People are feeling isolated and they're feeling really disappointed and rejected by their own country. I'm wondering how the support workers are coping with the influx of distress and the increased number of calls that you're experiencing as soon as the voice was announced, I put a strategic plan in place. And what I did was I gave those crisis supporters some extra training around self-care and social and emotional well-being, and also around resilience, really looking after yourself as a person. And I've also got in place some one-on-one social and emotional well-being support for those staff members, external from the current supports we already have in place. And we do have lots of supports for our um, crisis supporters. But I just thought to add that extra layer is a good idea and nobody's utilised it yet. None of our staff have utilised it yet. We're very good at looking after each other and we've certainly been keeping an eye out on each other to make sure that we're okay. They're holding up really well. The crisis supporters are the backbone of 13 Yarn. What have the number of calls been like in the lead up to the referendum? Did they increase? It came in waves. Whenever there was a big announcement or whenever the debate got nasty, our calls would go up and then they'd sort of slow down to the normal rate again. And then something else had happened, they'd go up again. I can say weekends are generally pretty quiet for 13 Yarn because the family get together on the weekends. You know, they don't really need 13 Yarn as much. But we had a lot of calls over the weekend. We had well over 200 calls over the weekend. In fact, on Sunday, we had 125 calls come into the line. Normally, it's around 50 on the weekend. We made sure that we had the staff there to answer all those calls because we need to be there for the community in this time of need. And it has been a very intense time politically and socially in the lead up to The Voice. What sort of impact do you think that the campaigning along with the various debates and now the outcome has had on emotional and social well-being of First Nations people and communities? Look, I, I think it's been very damaging. Just the nastiness of the debate And some of the things that came out of people's mouths that were just not fact and not what people are experiencing. It's just really frustrating that there couldn't have been a straightforward debate on the issue that dealt in facts that didn't deal in, oh, this may happen and this may happen. And I mean, it's a tactic. I mean, when the Mabo decision was handed down, everybody was going to lose their backyards and that didn't happen. And when Rudd said sorry to the stolen generations, apparently we're going to have to pay out billions in compensation. That didn't happen. That sort of sensationalisation of the debate uh, has really upset the community. 
In a statement from Reconciliation Australia, they said it's now time for healing. And on social media, Senator Dorinda Cox also said we'll rise and start our healing. So moving forward, what do you think this could look like for First Nations communities? How do you think that they can move forward and begin healing? I think that to regain trust of the Aboriginal community is going to be difficult for the government. I think that people need to sit back and reflect and heal. You know, we're a resilient race of people. This isn't the worst thing that's ever been done to us. We will rise out of this and we will rise stronger. And I think it's really sent the message that everything we've ever gained in the Aboriginal community, like our medical services and our legal services and things like that, came out of protest. I think that sent the message to the Aboriginal community that protest is the only way to get things done. I don't honestly believe that. I think that we get seats at the table and negotiate. The trust there is gone. And I've seen across social media that a lot of Aboriginal people are talking about protests and about, you know, if we want something, we're going to have to take it. What do you think that the broader community can do to support the social and emotional well-being of First Nations people and communities at this time? Stop asking Aboriginal people how they feel about the vote. Stop talking about the referendum in public. Keep your eyes open and your ears open. And if you see somebody struggling, ask if they're okay. And if they're not okay, ask them to reach out to 13 Yarn or some other support service. Really keep an eye on each other and wrap our arms around each other at this time. And what else do you think that governments can do to offer further support in moving forward from from this moment? I think they need to have a plan. You know, I noticed there was a post on social media that said they'd built 100 houses in the last 100 days. There needs to be good news for the Aboriginal community come through from the government. They really need to look at the way they fund Aboriginal organisations. You know, these large organisations have full-time grant people that, you know, just sit there and write for grant funding. And Aboriginal organisations can't afford that because they hire people to deliver to the communities. I think that the approach with the Aboriginal community should be let's work together let's hear from the community what they want let's take that and work with that let's start doing things with the community rather than to the community or at the community and just lastly to reiterate what's the main message for first nations people who are feeling lost and distressed right now Look, we're there to help. Give 13 Yarn a ring on 139276 or reach out to somebody in your community that you know can help you. Don't suffer alone. A lot of people are feeling the way you feel and there's no shame in it. There's no shame in that at all. 13 Yarn National Manager Marjorie Anderson speaking with me. If you or someone you know needs support, please call 13 Yarn on 139276 or Lifeline on 139276. One four. This week, Swiss mining giant Glencore announced it will shut down its copper operations in Mount Isa by mid-2025, shutting down 1,200 jobs. Residents in the area and the Mount Isa City Council are confident other mining can complement the town's interests. National Radio News Director Frank Bonacorso asked Deputy Mayor of Mount Isa City Council, Phil Barwick, what's the community's reaction to the mine's announcement? Quite mixed, um, Frank. Now, I just, I just got to let you know that this is my personal view of things, and not necessarily reflective of council. But um, 
obviously there's going to be a, a stage slowdown there in, um, as they close the copper mine. Um, so we've been told by Glencore it'll close in um, effectively in July 2025. And they will be, um, you know, looking at the first sort of redundancies and those sorts of things happening around um, the end of 2024. Uh, so there's quite a quite a bit of time ahead of us for, you know, for the people to get things in order and to um, be able to sort of organise their lives a bit better. Okay. The Deputy Premier yesterday pledged a multi-million dollar package for, uh, to restructure in the wake of uh, the uh, pending closure of the copper mine. Uh, the Deputy Premier tended to paint a very positive picture of the resilience of the community there. Is that how you're seeing it and will this package actually help Mount it? Oh, look, Frank, there's a couple, quite a few ironies in all of this, you know, and, and I'll go through them. But one of the biggest things, of course, is that there's a lot of growth in mining around the area in the region and, uh, you know, there's phosphate mines coming on and there's a lot of uh, exploration and even Glencore themselves are, are doing additional exploration in the 24 and in 25, you know, they're spending $60 million on on exploring, you know, close to the city there in their leases. So um, that's the irony of it, I guess, and, um, you know, these things will, will add jobs to the region for sure. You sound very positive, uh, but it's been described as a hammer blow, 1,200 jobs to go, roughly, but you seem to be uh, confident about the future. I, I am, actually, Frank, um, and one of my roles is uh, I'm chair of the Australian Mining Cities Alliance, and, and, you know, we see these sorts of things all the time, and, and you know, one of the things we do try to to advocate to governments is that, you know, there, there are mines are, are definitive, you know, and, and we know this, you know, that, that mines do come to their end of the life. And so it's always in the back of people's minds that whenever they're doing anything that a mine is not going to last forever, unless, you know, there's something that comes up close by, then, then it will close, you know. You know, there's, um, ironically, again, before this announcement, you know, the Mount Isa city itself would have had somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 job vacancies around the city, including the mine itself. When you think about it in those terms, you know, we, we couldn't even, you know, fill our own jobs that we already had there. Um, and it's, um, the housing shortage was quite extreme as well, um, you know, so some of, some of these things might ease for a little while. Retooling, reskilling, all these things take time. Glencore, from the sounds of it, has a plan for you know, recalibrating its operations there. Would you say that the average uh, business owner, tradesperson in Mount Isa and the surrounds you know, are going to do it tough before they, um, the good times start reasserting themselves? I think that will be the case, Frank, yeah. It'll be tough for, for a little while um, until things rebalance. You know, the, the underground mine's going to go into care and maintenance, and so is the concentrators. They will need some jobs around for that sort of thing, and there's no rehab planned, as I understand it, in the immediate future. But, you know, there's there's things on the horizon, I think, that can give people hope. I mean, there's a lot of third-party copper coming back in through the smelter. The smelter's being kept alive, um, you know, up until 2030 at least. There's only two of those smelters in Australia, so it's a pretty important piece of manufacturing that'll still occur in the city. The lead concentrate, for example, will um, is still coming in from other mines around, like from the Northern Territory, the MacArthur River mine. Um, it'll still be processed in the lead smelter at, at Mount Isa there. And um, there's, a, there's also this impending transformation that we all need to go through, and um, Glencore are telling us that Glencore itself are already doing $1 billion worth of recycling in certain ways, you know, through their mining operations. So... They're taking in um, third-party recycling as well, so there's a, another source of revenue there. 
So, yeah, I think, you know, some of the things that we've sort of impressed on Glencore is about um, when they're redeploying staff and, and looking at their staff um, movements, you know, if there's redundancies happening and things like that, but there's also will be um, that sort of an approach that they would look at making sure that locals are, are looked after as best they can initially, you know, because they clearly um, locals living in the Mount Isa community would have investments in the place, you know, if it's just um, either with houses or, or um, you know, leases and their children at school, like that. So I think there's, uh, there's a lot of things that we'll have to reassess in terms of what council's doing. Deputy Mayor of Mount Isa in North Queensland, Phil Barwick, ending the report by National Radio News' Frank Bonacorso. Businesses are usually seen as not caring about the environment and climate action, but thanks to an organisation, this is changing. Reforest is helping businesses to become more sustainable by supporting reforestation across Australia thanks to an online platform which will also engage their clients to be part of the movement. The Wires Eduardo Jordan started asking CEO and co-founder of Reforest, Daniel Walsh, at the Asia-Pacific Cities Summit in Brisbane, the aim of Reforest. Yeah, so we are a social enterprise based here in Brisbane. We've got a technology platform that helps businesses take very tangible and authentic action for climate and nature in a way that's engaging for their customers. Uh, And we also work with whole geographic regions like cities and tourism destinations to implement local regenerative programs that help bring together that economy to be measuring their emissions, removing them locally, restoring local ecosystems. And so our purpose to be here today is to talk to cities uh, in other parts of the world who are looking for a way to accelerate net zero amongst their local economy and to get more action happening and ideally to work with them to help put these kind of programs in place. All right. So I understand Reforest has been on the business for around five years. What's the progress you've seen across the projects Reforest has over the last five years? Yeah, well, I guess we'd measure progress in a couple of ways. There's the number of trees we've planted, so there's kind of the environmental, climate, nature outcomes that we're driving, and I think we're we're still a start-up, but we're somewhere over a million, 1.2 maybe million trees so far. Um, so there's a kind of a nice climate and nature impact there. And then progress in terms of the businesses that we're working with and the communities that we're helping to drive toward net zero Uh, Probably the best example we have is on the Sunshine Coast where we've got a really nice case study there. We're working with the whole tourism industry from the airport to an airline to many of the local um, leading hotels, tour operators, attractions, as well as visitors to be restoring local ecosystems as part of one coordinated program there. And we're seeing that already kind of start to ripple out to the broader economy on the Sunshine Coast as well. So that's kind of a nice case study. And we're doing that in a few different places around Australia. Excellent. Now, uh, you were mentioning that uh, Reforest uses technology to, you know, reforest and plant trees and all that. Could you please expand a little bit on that? Yeah, effectively what we have is a platform that helps make this kind of activity of measuring your footprint and taking action by planting trees, restoring ecosystems as tangible and authentic and real as possible. That's one of the, It's always been one of the biggest blockers to action from businesses and consumers is a sense of, well, where is it and what is it and what's my money really achieving? We all want to be part of the solution to climate and to biodiversity loss but we want to feel a sense of ownership and like it's real and meaningful. So our technology is really designed to solve those problems. It makes it feel like here's your tree going in the ground, it's part of your forest that's helping to leave the planet better and it's your legacy, it's your impact that you're having and we make that something that businesses can do and engage their customers with so we're trying to foster a really regenerative economy in that way and that's sort of the the number of places that our technology lets a business 
integrate that into what they do and the stakeholders that they can engage with that positive impact, that's kind of where our, uh, our unique selling proposition is, I suppose. So I understand as well that um, you have projects worldwide. In your expertise, why are businesses worldwide interested now in reforesting green areas? I think we're all becoming much more aware as we see sort of some of the climate impacts of climate change and we hear more about biodiversity loss. We're all becoming aware that we need to be part of a solution, whether you're a business owner, whether you're an individual. I think we all want to be leaving it better for the next generation. We just need tangible ways of doing that. Everyone wants to restore their own backyard, not a distant part of the world that you can't see or connect to. So it's really important that we provide project opportunities in lots of different places so that everyone's got something that's sort of meaningful to them. So what's the feedback you have received from your clients, uh, businesses, community, etc., around the work you're doing with Reforest? I think when people see the real impact they're having in terms of trees going into the ground and when they see that their customers have something to connect to as well as part of their purchase, that's really ticking a lot of the boxes that businesses have to be taking action. So that's the feedback we get is that it's solving that problem of uh, tangibility and authenticity and a way of engaging customers. CEO and co-founder of Reforest, Daniel Walsh, speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3ZZZ in Nam, Melbourne, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane. And Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya, Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.